The following is an encore episode here on Tales from the South. This is Paula Morell, and welcome to the Tales from the South podcast. From UALR Public Radio and William F. Lehman Public Library, this is Tales from the South, recorded in front of a live audience each week at Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas. Tales from the South is Southerners reading their true story, unrehearsed and live on our intimate stage. It's all about reconnecting with each other through the power of a story. Here's executive producer and host, Paula Morrell, live at Tales from the South. She's a catch me out. And a dog's bow wow. She's everything that a country boy needs. And a keyboard, she's a different bag of me. How's everybody doing tonight? Welcome to Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas, and to another edition of Tales from the South, presented by William F. Lehman Public Library right here in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm your host, Paula Morell. So how about our house band, the Salty Dogs? What'd you think? They have CDs for sale after the show, and you can check out their website at thesaltydogs.net. To my left here strumming his 1931 national resonator is blues guitarist Mark Simpson. Mark wrote our theme music and plays for us live each week. And our incredible setback here made of genuine screen doors from the Delta with mixed media portraiture by esteemed Arkansas artist B.L. Cox from her Images of the American South collection. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of these works goes to Tales from the South. More can be seen at her website at greatfineart.com. All right, are y'all ready for some Southern-style storytelling? Tonight's show is about beginnings and endings, starting with I do and ending with goodbye. All stories are true and told by the Southerners who live them. Later tonight, Sherilyn Jones-Taylor smuggles contraband so that she can numb the inevitable. And then Eric Maya listens and then lets go. But let's start the night with Rex Robbins climbing a mountain and witnessing a beginning that makes his nerves teeter on the edge in proposals. And so we wait. I really want to know how this turns out. But Mary, my 24-year-old daughter, wants to move on. In just a few minutes, a young man's life will be laid open and hung out over a bluff. Mary seems bored. The thought crosses my mind. Women really don't get it. It's Saturday morning, and we are climbing the east side of Pinnacle Mountain in central Arkansas, the hard side, the one with the boulder field stacked upward at a knee-wrenching slope. Only a few people are on the trail. Just before topping out on the south peak, we approach three young men sitting leisurely on rocks with a humongous video camera pointed in the general direction of the North Peak, which is about 100 yards away. Now, this is a mystery. They have lugged this big, expensive camera up the mountain but seem to have no interest in the panoramic views from the highest point. The only thing unusual about the North Peak, as far as I can tell, is a small splash of yellow too far away to identify. 
Puzzled, I look back at the guys. There's about to be a proposal, one of them tells me. Let's see, proposal, business, money. I'm still confused. (laughs) A marriage proposal, he clarifies, with a tone probably reserved for those diagnosed with encroaching senility. Oh, that's cool. So are those flowers over there? I point to the yellow splotch on the distant peak. He confirms that they are. Does she know, I ask? We don't think so. So it all fits now. The hopeful groom-to-be has chosen a mountaintop to pop the question. With fresh air and open sky in front of God, three buddies and a few intrigued hill climbers. The proceedings will be filmed from a discreet distance using a camera with a powerful zoom lens. Flowers mark the spot. The guy must be a bit of a romantic, not perhaps not unlike myself. I proposed to my wife, not far from here, in a park overlooking Lake Maumel on a starry night. Climbing the last few steps to the top of the South Peak, I suggest to Mary we stay and watch. We select a hard rock seat with a view of the North Peak, perched just above the film crew. I recite for Mary a story she's heard before, the story of proposing to her mother. We can see the lake, and so I point to the general location where it happened, tucked away in a small cove off the lake, just out of our sight. I remember the warmth of the moment, but also the tinge of fear that rejection at least uncertainty, was still a possibility. It didn't go exactly as planned, I tell Mary. I had no idea roses would wilt in one afternoon if tossed on the dashboard of a pickup truck. <laughs> there, was, there was the lake and the stars were out and, and something dead that smelled to high heaven. <laughs> the, the bad omens were not working in my favor. But 31 years of near-perfect marriage and three daughters later, and now I'm sitting next to my youngest on a rock that witnessed it all. Just as I finish the story, I see a slender man in his 40s climbing up from behind us. I can overhear most of his conversation with the film crew. His voice is huffy. None of you were able to talk him out of it? It's not all that it's cracked up to be. He climbs on up to the point where Mary and I are sitting. I can't resist poking at him a bit. So you wouldn't get married again, I ask. He is surprised by the question, but quickly recovers. Well, this is the last time. I'm guessing he's been to the well and drank the water more than once or twice before. (laughs) A few people come and go, but nothing is happening on the North Peak. It begins to get cold, and Mary is ready to head down. I resist for a few more minutes, but finally concede. Our plan was to hike down the west face, the easier side, and then circle back around the base trail to our car, As we descend, we should pass the young couple on their climb up. I remind myself not to smile stupidly or issue any words of premature congratulations. Sure enough, just as we reach the saddle that separates the north and south peaks, a young couple cross the trail in front of us and begin making their way out to the north peak. Mary turns and smiles, but is ready to continue down. Not me. Even now, there's a possibility of this ending badly. It is is not the most radical proposal in the world, but it is being witnessed and filmed. I think of those videos my son-in-law talked about seeing on YouTube, documenting ways not to propose marriage. Don't put the ring in a food item, was the advice in one of the clips. Turns out gold shows up pretty well on an emergency room x-ray. Another clip was a broadcast of a professional basketball game. The girl has been lured to center court. 
The guy shows up, drops to a knee, and presents a ring. The girl considers the question for a moment, whispers something to the guy, and then runs off the court, alone. (laughs) The TV announcer is not sympathetic. Ah, he'll get over it in 10 to 12 years. I have already given instructions to my daughters in case something like that happens to them in public. Have a heart, act surprised, smile sweetly, and tell the guy, without moving your lips, yes, we'll talk later. (laughs) Here on Pinnacle Mountain, things could go badly. What if the young man is rejected? I tried to remember my scout training in high mountain rescue techniques. Truth is, I never made it out of Cub Scouts. <laughs> the dude is SOL. <laughs> For their part, the two seem calm and oblivious to our presence and the impending disaster I've created in my mind. They slowly work their way further out onto the rocky ridge, steep cliffs on both sides. We cannot hear anything they say, only a gentle wind through the trees. They walk up to the flowers, no visible reaction. Does she see them? Maybe she thinks the daffodils bloomed early this year. They walk a little further and stop. He takes her in his arms, then gets down on one knee. After a few moments, her hands go up to cover her face. Then she leans over, takes his face in her hands, and kisses him. A lovely word, yes, more so when viewed in pantomime. I breathe easier now, finally convinced the guy will not be jumping off the mountain. (laughs) We start our hike down. Funny, I don't know their name, never heard them speak a word. Yet for some reason, I'm bouncing along down the mountain. Maybe it comes from witnessing something positive. Maybe it is that I recognize the kindred spirit in the young man. The west side of the mountain faces the lake, the water barely visible through the trees. The small cove and park would be just over there. Too far to see, close enough to feel. Rex Robbins and his wife Sandy live in North Little Rock. He is an environmental engineer by trade and training that enjoys writing and is currently gathering stories from the Buffalo River Valley. In our next story, let's go with Sherilyn Jones Taylor and a hidden bottle of whiskey to say goodbye in Hello Brown Sugar. Shortly after my sister and I began drinking our Jack and Cokes from our small styrofoam cups, The nurse entered the room. (laughs) Checking on Daddy, asking if we needed anything. We answered that no, no thank you, we were fine. And all three of us pretended that she couldn't smell the bourbon floating around the room. (laughs) Then she quietly left. It was just before Christmas, and Daddy was at the end of his struggle with stage 4 lung cancer. My sister was uneasy about having the presumed contraband in our possession, presumed, because I never actually saw a sign prohibiting alcoholic beverages at the hospice. But I assured her that the nurses had better things to do than worry about our nightcap, as long as we didn't get rowdy. She continued to worry, though, expressing concern that we'd be the first people ever to be kicked out of hospice. Again, I reassured her that we were probably not the first people 
to have a calming nip while holding bedside vigil, and that even if we were, there was no reason for anyone to have us summarily booted from hospice. I mean, this was the South, after all. And being Southern, I am drawn, for reasons both culture and palate-driven, to the warm, loving, liquid embrace of sour mash. Specifically, Jack Daniels. My friend Scott prefers drambouille. But then he also uses words like milieu and, and pedagogy. So go figure. While he distributes his bon mots as though they were alms for the vocabularily poor, I prefer the simple things in life both in my lexicon and my libations. I love the tart burn that cuts saucily through the coke and slides confidently down my throat, warming me from the inside out. The taste of Tennessee bourbon is one of rebellion, of sass. It's a heady mixture of crass redneck, backroom poker games, and secretive boozy southern bells with a sous-sauce of old-school white trash. <laughs> My daddy, like Jack Daniels, was full of both rebellion and sass. As a runty but spirited kid, he once got revenge on a bully who repeatedly stole his lunch by carefully preparing a dog poop sandwich. <laughs> then frosting the edges with peanut butter. Predictably, the bully stole his lunch, bit into the sandwich, and beat my daddy to a pulp. He did not, however, take daddy's lunch again. True to form, daddy was an oddball, even in that last week. Imagine my horror when his nurse a smiling, middle-aged black woman was greeted with, Hello, brown sugar, when she walked in the door. Mortified, I quickly told her that I was sorry, uh, my face starting to heat up. I left the room in shame. Twenty minutes later, when I returned, the nurse was giggling like a schoolgirl, telling me, I wish he was my daddy. <laughs> I think I mumbled something to the effect that she could have him. During that last week, he also invented a game he called Eat My Shorts. <laughs> the rules of which I won't go into, but it did entail uh, flinging crumbs from his sweatpants, and, well, never mind. <laughs> Daddy was a content Southerner. He even had a ball cap that said, American by birth, Southern by the grace of God. He was the kind of man who would hit you in the eye with a snowball and then tell you Democrats don't cry. The kind of man that women fell in love with, even after he was fat and bald and broke. The kind of man who would cheat on your mama, then slap his date when she badmouthed your mama. The kind of man who would pass gas in public and blame it on you. And then came cancer. 
When it finally became clear that Daddy's organs were failing and there was no real hope, my sisters and I made the choice to have him moved to hospice. I, along with one of my sisters, stayed with him there. In preparation for our stay, we went to his house and packed up some necessities, clean underwear, toothbrushes, and a t-shirt apiece. Before we left to return to the hospice, my sister grabbed the box of ding-dongs that Daddy had in the cabinet, and I grabbed the Jack Daniels. As I said, necessities. (laughs) As night fell, my sister and I were in our respective hybrid chair beds, talking about everything from our childhood to funeral arrangements and paying Daddy's bills. Before long, feeling sorry for myself, for both of us, I padded down the quiet hall to the nourishment room, retrieved a Coke from the refrigerator full of canned sodas, school-sized 2.5% milk, Jell-O pudding cups, padded back to the room, and pulled out the JD. With a hushed reverence that is appropriate on such occasions, (laughs) I mixed two drinks in the small styrofoam cups and produced two ding-dongs from our bag of provisions. So we sat in our pajama pants, each wearing one of Daddy's sweatshirts, drinking and talking into the night, both utterly exhausted, but afraid to go to sleep, afraid that Daddy would go and we would not know it, afraid that we would awake to find him gone, afraid of what it would mean to no longer have a Daddy, even one like ours. So we talked, and we laughed, and we cried, and we finally turned out the lights, and we just kept talking. Sherilyn Jones Taylor is a middle-aged Southern woman working to convince herself that the serenity she hears comes with age is much more satisfying than the firmness that comes with youth. (laughs) Thus far, she remains unconvinced. (laughs) In our final story of the night, Eric Maya learns through his sister's story of a death that her life has just begun in Delta Dead. It was a hot summer day, and my sister sat across from me on the patio of our childhood Brazilian home. I could hear the clinging of the dishes through the open window as my mother cleaned the kitchen after breakfast. Okay, then, I know you have something to tell me. I said as I took a sip of my coffee and learned back in my chair. I can tell by the way you went to bed early last night and have been avoiding me this morning. The cat got your tongue? I put my elbows on the glass top table and leaned forward. Now I had her all to myself. I never could keep a story from you, even as kids, she said. As she finally looked me in the eye. Our family is known for telling stories, and she and I were always trying to top each other's tales. But there was something different this time, as if she was haunted by even the thought of this one. I brushed it off his nerves and winked at her. Go on, then. Let's hear what you've got. My sister leaned back in her chair, took a deep breath, and began. She had just finished the last appointment at the clinic when the boy came running to the door. They are asking the doctor to go to the funeral. My sister was the only doctor in a 40-mile radius in the small town of Jaguaruana on the Jaguaribe Delta on northern Brazil. In those days, she saw her share of undernourished children 
turning into obese teens and even and eventually pregnant ones. She followed their gestations and delivered their babies. She saw women presenting with breast tumors the size of a baseball and wondered why had it taken so long to find help. She saw boys turn from football to girls and then drop high school to work at the fields. Her clinical staff, a moody lady in her 50s who protected the doctor as a cat protects a litter of kittens, tried to shoo the boy away, indignant that a child had been sent to call for the doctor. My sister was leaving her office and heard the boy pleading his case. What's going on, she asked. They told me to call you, miss. They said you have to come. What happened? The boy opened his eyes, stared at my sister for a moment with his mouth open, and replied, They said Mr. James, the dead man in the coffin, is alive. My sister had given plenty of diagnosis in her Delta practice and she'd never seen in medical school goiter, pellagra, methanol poisoning, intoxication with all sorts of pesticides, and even a patient with Klinefelter syndrome. The methanol poisoning was particularly important in establishing her as a doctor, as her prompt diagnosis and treatment cured a man's blindness. Suddenly, she was no longer a nurse, but revered as the best doctor ever to work in the Delta. Now, would she have to examine a dead man? They said only you can say if he is dead, and they would not bury him without you saying so. Please tell me what happened, sister asked the boy. People came to the funeral. Then Mr. Walton said he saw Mr. James Blank. They paid him no attention because he's old and blind in one eye. But then Mrs. Everett said she saw him move his mouth. Then everyone was afraid, and others said he did look different now. My sister knew better than to doubt the boy. He would not dare make something like this up. She told the boy to get in the car. The house where the funeral was being held was off a narrow dirt road off the main gravel road. A number of people stood outside. A few were inside. The funeral home van parked on the side. They looked at her the only doctor most of them had ever seen, imparted the crowd to make room for her passing. The nearly widow woman stood to greet her at the entrance. In the center of the small room, the coffin lid was open from the chest up so people could see the face surrounded by flowers. It was in that face that someone had noticed a blink and another had noticed a feeble smile. A thin man stood in the corner, he greeted my sister with a sweaty, cold handshake and an alcohol breath. The widow took my sister aside, and after uh, everyone had moved out of the room, asked her, Is he dead? The sharp pain in the widow's eyes made a reality of mourning and grief, yet so present, even veiled by the thin hope of signs of life. My sister faced the searching, hopeful eyes and tried to place herself back at the comfort of the ICU at the university hospital, where death was a daily diagnosis. She tried to breathe deep, but inhaling the smell of dead flowers and burned candles almost made her faint. She stood her ground and asked to examine the body. The woman looked at her with hope one more time and then looked at the man left in the room. He moved out of the somber corner and said, now, Miss James, let me get you a cup of tea to help you calm down. I don't need no cup of tea, Mr. Jones. 
my dead husband just smiled to someone in his own funeral. <laughs> someone came and took the widow away from the room. It was now only my sister and this man. I can help you, doctor. I'm Franklin Jones, the coroner and also the funeral director. The coffin seemed to float in stale air, elevated by four thin iron pedestals. As Mr. Jones removed the flowers from the neck and around the face, he said under his breath, He is dead, Doc. I'm sure he is dead. My sister was recollecting her ICU thoughts when those words hit her. He was dead. He looked dead. He was possibly starting to smell dead. She just needed to confirm it. Now that the flowers are gone, he looked even smaller. He was pale. His eyes were closed, his mouth slightly open with the teeth of large yellow teeth showing. She palpated the neck. The skin was cold, eerily cold, the temperature living human beings never have. She looked for a pulse, a beat, in the arterial rhythm their heart transmits to the body. But the drums were not there. He had to be dead. Even with her ever-present stethoscope, she auscultated his neck and then moved her hand skillfully under the man's coat and pressed the chest piece over the man's skin. The silence in her ears felt strange, as if she had pressed her stethoscope not on a chest but on a piece of wood or a cement wall. Nothing moved, no sound under the cold skin. He had to be dead. I told you he was dead. For a moment she thought she was hearing her own thoughts again, and then she realized it was the funeral director who had moved closer to her. She fumbled through her pockets and got her flashlight out. Another test, light reflexes. She took a deep breath, held it, and moved her face close to the coffin, with the other hand propped in the right eye open. The eye, usually so moist and shiny, was now glassy, empty of its natural life tone. She turned the flashlight on, and the pupils remained, as they were, indifferent to the invasion of light into the tiny chamber of the eyeball. He is dead, she thought to herself, finally making her diagnostic conclusion. She opened the door and faced the widow, who waited outside. He is dead. As if on cue, the widow started to sob. Relatives moved to her side in support. Others wept. My sister left the house, left the funeral, drove her car back to her home, where she poured herself a drink, hoping to forget this story so she would never have to tell me about it. I looked at my little sister, noticing her hand tremble slightly as she took another sip of her coffee. Suddenly, my sister looked older than she did early this morning, as if the telling of this story had somehow aged her. And I realized as she finally looked into my eyes that unlike the chauvinisms of my parents' Brazil, there are some stories that never leave us, no matter how much we will them to. And my sister, whose hand I held as the big brother of a little girl, had now delivered babies herself, cured the blind, faced prejudices, and even death. My little sister had been a doctor all by herself in the desert of the Delta. I, the big brother, could let go of her hand now. lives in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was born and raised in Northeast Brazil and practices medicine in the Southeast U.S. He is the father of three and husband of one. So how about our storytellers and stories tonight? What would you think? 
Thank you to all of our writers. Thank you to our live audience. And thank you to UALR Public Radio. You can download and listen to our podcast on our website. We are open for submissions from Southerners. For more information, visit talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next week at Starving Artist Cafe for another edition of Tales from the South. Good night, everybody. Writer accommodations for Tales from the South provided by Robinwood Bed and Breakfast in Little Rock. More at robinwoodbnb.com. And the Baker House Bed and Breakfast in North Little Rock. More at bakerhousenlr.com. Live sound and studio assistance provided by the UALR School of Mass Communication. You too can experience Tales in person as a member of our live audience. We're now traveling throughout Arkansas and the South, bringing Tales to your community. Details on hosting a live show, our schedule, and ticket information can all be found on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Thanks for keeping the art of Southern-style storytelling alive, and we'll see you next week on Tales from the South.